Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-40. We tend to romanticize the biblical world and we tend to sanitize it, but I also think we tend to simplify the people. I think we need to give them a lot more credit than Mm. we do. I Mm. don't think there was anything simple about their lives. They knew how to do much more than we know how to do. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and once again, this is Real Israel Talk Radio. And on today's program, we are continuing with our discussion with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott at William Jessup University. Dr. Schaefer Elliott holds positions at the university as Associate Dean of the School of Theology and Leadership as well as Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology. Professor Schaefer Elliott owns a Ph.D. earned while studying at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom in her research of what is called Iron Age II in the Biblical Narratives. My guest is the author of the book, The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant, which um, essentially is a user-friendly exploration of some basic concepts within archaeology, as well as the techniques and methods used by archaeologists these days in the field of archaeological exploration. Professor Schaefer Elliott is also the author of another book, which is what we will be getting into today as well. That is a food in ancient Judah, domestic cooking in the time of the Hebrew Bible. We'll continue now with our study of the biblical texts of Hebrew scripture from about 500 to 1,000 years before Yeshua. So, uh, Professor Dr. Schaefer Elliott, welcome. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so from your experience, Dr. Schaefer Elliott, uh, let's get down to some more practical aspects of food and domestic life in ancient Israel. Um, Let's talk about some food ingredients, okay? There's three primary um, ingredients that are called the Mediterranean triad. Uh, That would be cereals, grapes, and olives. So cereals, you know, could be made into any number of things. And like we said earlier, their diet was estimated to be um, 50% cereals of their caloric intake. About 50% was out of cereals. Um, But then we also have grapes, which of course are a fruit that you would eat seasonally, that you could dry to make into raisins, but you would also make into wine. Your fermented beverages were safer to drink than your water most Mm. of the time. Mm. So unless you got your water from a fresh running natural source like a spring, or if you were just collecting water out of a cistern, that's pretty stagnant water and you would want to boil that first (laughs) before you drink it. So drinking fermented beverages, regardless of what the actual alcohol content is, you know, people always talk about that, would have been safer to drink. Uh, Today, if we were to be doing that, I would probably be, uh, you know, probably 140, 50 kilo, probably 300 pounds (laughs) or more. So what is it about them versus today? And how could they eat that kind of high caloric intake and not 
get fat? I mean, how did they do that? That's a really good question. I mean, if you imagine you're doing manual labor tasks all mm-hmm. day, you are burning a lot of calories and you could eat a lot of bread. You know, you could drink wine every day and you're probably, you are putting so much more out there than you're taking in. So you would have eaten a lot of seasonal fruits and vegetables, um, even though vegetables kind of get a sh- the short end of the stick in mm-hmm. the Bible, you know, they're not looked upon mm-hmm. very favorably mm-hmm. a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, fruit, seasonal fruits that you can, you can dry and store hopefully as well and make things out of them. But then, of course, the cereals, which you could make into bread and porridge uh, for like a morning meal, or if things were really poor, you could eat that at night too. Uh, but then also legumes. So stews made out of legumes and vegetables and the occasional meat, if you had some, that would have been what you ate. There really weren't very overweight people back then. Maybe some, but not generally. No, not generally. In fact, if you were overweight, um, then you were probably a wealthy or elite person because that showed that you don't have to go out into the fields and work. And if you were more fair-skinned, also showed that you weren't out in the sun working all the time. Whereas if we were to be eating this stuff today, uh, you and I, uh, you know, when you're in Israel, in Jerusalem, you go from bakery to bakery and you say, wow, I like that and that and that. Oh, yeah. And I picked up a lot of weight in a number of years there where... Because you know, the food's just so good okay. and all that lovely pita bread. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. But you know, when you're on yeah. the excavations, you are doing so much manual labor. Yeah. Would you say the ancients had one, two, three square meals a day? A couple scholars would suggest that, you know, breakfast would have been... Maybe some leftovers from bread the night before, um, dairy, gruel from the cereals. Lunch could have been something seasonal and raw and light, especially with the time of year, depending if you had to Mm. go out to the fields Mm. or if you're shepherding your flocks, you know, it had to be something you had to take with you. Mm. Um, But that dinner or your evening meal would have been um, kind of your main hot meal uh, and probably a stew. They ate you know, fairly healthy in a lot of ways, but they were also really insecure about their food. You know, they they didn't always have a lot of food and they were growing their own food. I mean, I tell my students regularly, when we think of this world, we tend to romanticize it and we tend to sanitize it mm. compared to our world today. I don't think any of us would have been able to survive if we were to time travel back then. <laughs> wow. We would not do well. Jesus, Yeshua, was he, you know, kind of pudgy, overweight. You know, everyone walked everywhere. So I would imagine he would have been pretty fit. I think of stories like uh, Eliyahu, Elijah, who runs from uh, Mount Carmel over to Jezreel. (laughs) You know, from Carmel to Jezreel has got to be 10, 5, 10 miles. I mean, it's, it's a long way across the valley. And he's running in the mud and the rain ahead of the chariot. That guy must have been incredibly fit. And when I say fit, I I don't want to give the impression that I'm meaning they were super healthy Mm -hmm. because they would have been malnourished in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, because again, if your diet is that heavily into mm. bread, mm-hmm. um, and you're not 
getting vegetables all year long, then you would have not had all of the stuff that you need. How did they deal with their sweet tooth? Do you have any research on that? Um, you know, you would have the date syrup that we talked about, the pressed fruit syrup. You would have mm. had honey. You would have had a dried fruit. And sometimes it's translated as cakes, but we think of cakes in one way and <laughs> maybe cakes for them would have been, mm. you know, just putting some dried fruit mm. in um, and maybe some of the sweeteners mm. into some different type of bread molds or something mm. and making mm. something a bit different. But when we find their skeletal remains, which isn't often, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it does occasionally happen, their teeth are, are oftentimes in, in fairly good condition because of their lack of sugar and high fructose corn syrup. So the skeletal remains that you do come across when you come across them, uh, they don't show so much tooth uh, decay from sugar. Tooth decay from sugar. Right. We get a lot of cavities. When people talk about their diet and everything, I think, well, they weren't so concerned about watching what they ate. Sure. (laughs) They're working all day And they're just trying to get enough food to survive. Let's talk to the guys out there who are the beer drinkers. Uh, We find beer strainers. Wait, you found beer strainers? Yeah, there are strainers that were used uh, for beer. Yeah, there's even like jugs that have like a a spout that have like a a strainer part on the mouth of it. So it just, you kind of pour it in that way. And then you have Egyptian iconography uh, that shows these large storage jars with straws. Now you mentioned something earlier here that there is a uh, academic dispute that maybe the term in Hebrew, the strong drink That it might Mm -hmm. be beer, but there's no clear consensus on that. Do you want to comment on that? You know, we had a a paper that that someone did looking at that. Does this word, is it used, can it be translated as beer or is it can, should it be translated as just strong drink? Um, If I recall correctly, the paper was saying um, it should be beer. Okay. So yain, that's wine. Shachar in Hebrew is a strong drink, which some scholars are saying, yes, that's possibly beer. Did I hear that you said that you might lean toward that yourself? Yeah, I haven't come down firmly either way, but it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Tirosh. Now that's a new wine that's coming from the grapes. It's not totally fermented. Uh, Any comment on that? Right. Your grapes have been freshly pressed. You know, you want to let it sit for a bit. And we have storage jars that they would have been put in. And also they would have to put like little holes in the storage jars so the gases could release as they're fermenting. Mm. But you you do wonder, okay, well, would the average family have let their wine sit? Uh, But then we also have industrial size places for both olive oil and winemaking. So if you think of Jezreel, the excavations up at Jezreel led by Norma Franklin and Jenny Ebling, they have uncovered this big wine press complex. And then if you think about olive oil, uh, you have a huge industrial size olive oil complex at um, Ekron, which is Mm. the archaeological name is Mm -hmm. uh, Mikne. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk a little bit further about this domestic foods in the uh, Iron II, Judah, Israel. This would be uh, about 950 roughly uh, before Yeshua to, you know, about the Babylonian captivity is what the kind of the demarcation point is. I would ask how 
intensive or complicated was it for someone to uh, turn on the oven? Mm -hmm. I can just go turn the dial on on the electric or gas oven, but for them, that was not so easy. Right, because your oven would take a while to heat up. The ones that we find in archaeology look roughly like the tenure, which uh, has an opening. You know, the opening is on the top of it. Mm-hmm. When you look at modern traditional societies in the Middle East who use a tenure, there's a second opening on the bottom that serves as a flue. So basically, they're usually made out of mud with some sort of sticking agent like straw. And you put the fire on in the inside. You would use animal dung, <laughs> you know, or mm-hmm. twigs and things like that. Mm -hmm. You get the oven really nice and hot. Then you rake out the ashes through the flue and then you would stick the bread on the walls on the inside of the oven. The Bedouin are still doing that today. They are. They absolutely are. And so that's why we do ethnoarchaeology is we go to these modern traditional Mm. societies and we watch how they do things uh, to help us understand how their ancient people in the same places that they live would have possibly done them. And so we did experimental archaeology on this and we made our own tenure and we let it sit in the sun to dry and Mm -hmm. then we set a fire on the inside to get it nice and and solid. And then uh, I got ingredients from the kibbutz store Mm -hmm. and I made a dough and we lit the fire. And when we look, use ethnoarchaeology and we see these women baking in these ovens, they have like gloves on and stuff things over their face sometimes, but they use like a pillow as like an oven mitt where they stretch the dough over the pillow and then they use that to smack on the walls of inside the oven. But I was amazed, absolutely amazed at how hot that oven got. And trying to stick these little loaves of pita bread without burning your fingers was difficult. And they baked quickly and they were good. You have to slap it down through the beehive hole onto the... Well, the, the opening's not yeah. terribly small. They had hands like men working in the fields. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were slapping this stuff in there, making food all day long for their family. I'm sure they were very strong after grinding grain and doing all the work that they're doing. I would also imagine that they had something that they used to help them with that. When you're saying what you're saying, It's just bringing back all kinds of things in my head, like, uh, you know, the Proverbs 31 woman, the Eshechaya in Hebrew, it would translate to the militant woman, the Eshechaya. She's a strong woman. You know, I am woman. You know, they're not these weak little things, frail. They worked very hard. They did. So you have here uh, essentially a glorified pizza oven that you're cooking your pizza on with animal dung. Yeah, and you could put the cooking pot either inside of it. If the opening was small enough, you could cook a stew while you're baking bread. So let me ask you, baking trays? Did they have such a thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we find them baking trays. Sometimes we call them griddles. Uh, The Saj. Now, this is actually mentioned in, uh, I think it's Isaiah 44, 16 and 19, and also Leviticus 7, 9. And I've seen the Bedouin use it. It's uh, a rounded metal disc that you rested over an open fire. It's a good way to cook stuff, huh? You know, if you're thinking about what the ancient Israelites would have used, of course, it wouldn't have been metal, but it would have been similar to how they would have used a stone. A stone? Like a hot rock. Mm -hmm. So instead, because they wouldn't use metal. No. 
because metal is precious. Metal is for weapons and tools. Yeah, you're not yeah, gonna, yeah. You're not going to use it to make for cooking. So the ancient equivalent of that would have been, you know, cooking over the hot rocks. So you you make the fire and you have like a, a large stone in the middle of it, and then you could slap the dough. Uh, and I've seen um, ethnographic studies that show um, people still still doing it that way too. Okay, mm-hmm. hot stones is Isaiah forty four nineteen. The saw. Leviticus uh, 7.9. We have griddles and baking trays. That's uh, Ezekiel 4.3. Leviticus 6.21. So many metaphors come from our food and food preparation. A lot of metaphors, Mm -hmm. which helps you in your research when you're in Mm -hmm. field archaeology, you know? It does, absolutely. Uh, Let's talk about some cooking pots, bowls, jugs. Maybe hybrid types of pots for cooking and baking. Parur, the sear, the uh, kahalat, and the dud. Like I think of a dud shemesh that's on a roof of a home for heating. But these are all references that are found in the biblical narratives in Hebrew. Right. And these are various kinds of cooking pots and bowls. You run across these a lot in your field archaeology, right? We do. And there's several different types of cooking pots. But if we want to simplify it into three, I think you can simplify it into three kind of basic forms. But Mm -hmm. there are regional variations and Mm -hmm. things like Mm -hmm. that, too. But we we won't have to get into that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you have the three basic forms, your oldest form being just the cooking bowl. Uh, Really popular, of course, during the Bronze Age and had a big open mouth, a rounded bottom. At first, they didn't have handles on them, but as time evolved, they did have handles. And this type of cooking pot would have been uh, you know, popular not only throughout the Bronze Age, but well into the Iron Age. It just seems to be a really like good, solid style <laughs> cooking pot. And depending mm-hmm. on the fabric or the wear of the cooking pot, so you would make your cooking pot out of, out of clay, but you would have to put temper in it, like some things that are going mm-hmm. to help the cooking pot expand and contrast with the heating and cooling. Hmm. So then those type of cooking bowls would have been, uh, these traditional bowls, as I call them, would have been really good for uh, different types of cooking, of course, depending on the wear of the cooking pot. And so they would say, oh, it's good for frying and steaming and boiling and stewing. Um, and it would have also, they're usually quite large. So they would have had a lot for um, large amounts of people or large types of food. So if you were Mm -hmm. to cook a stew that had meat in it, that'd be probably your preferred type of cooking bowl to use. Mm -hmm. With the arrival of the Philistines, you have the arrival of a new type of cooking pot, and it's more like a cooking jug. Hmm. Uh, they're not usually very big. I mean, they do range in size, but they're they're smaller, um, and they have a more closed opening, mm-hmm. and they often have a handle, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes two, but I think more often than not one. With the arrival of the Philistines, we get these type of cooking jugs, and the Philistines would cook on hearths. So not necessarily an oven, like a tenure type oven, like I just described to you earlier, but a hearth made of stones, okay? And so they would use 
these small jugs and they would place them uh, leaning on the stones of the hearth. And we find these cooking jugs, you find the soot marks on the opposite side of the handle. So the handle would be on the outside so you could just grab it. And then the soot mark would be on the side that's leaning against the hearth. So the soot mark, it gets embedded into that clay and then it's left for you to find two, 3,000 years later, you you archaeologists out there. And how does that make you feel when you see something like that? It's like, oh, it's really cool. It gets you thinking, you know, it gets me thinking. These were real people, Professor. They were real people. It's a real time and place and a real culture. This leads to a question about food preservation. No refrigerators, no freezers. What in the world did they do when they had to slaughter meat uh, when they needed, I suppose, what we would call longer term storage? What would they do? You would try to use up as much of that animal as as possible quickly as possible or you would share it with your neighbors you know reciprocal exchange is important part of community life you know let's say you had Hmm. to cull your herd and you shared some of that meat with some of your neighbors whether they're your related family members or not and then when they had to cull their herd you know they would share it with you so you would get some kind of this reciprocal exchange but storage would have been really important and how to store in such a way so that pests and critters wouldn't get into it Mm. And that would be a real problem. You know, the kind of ethos of that world is, well, yeah, we want to share, but we also want to make sure that we're providing for our families too, which is why I think hospitality is such an important issue if we're trying to understand this biblical world better, because bringing someone into your home, an act of hospitality, you know, you offer bread and water, you offer to wash their feet, which kind of indicates that they're part of your household now for the limited time that they're with you, which is usually three days. And then you offer them some rest. But when you offer them just some bread and water, they always come back with their best. You're, you're not just offering hospitality, you're, you're determining if this stranger is friend or foe, right? So by giving them your best, you're kind of offering them like an olive branch, so, so to speak. You're, you're saying, okay, I'm going to offer you my best. I'm going to put take you under my care. I'm going to protect you and care for you while you're here. And in return, don't do me any harm. Well, you know, it's interesting that the Bedouin have a uh, tradition that when a stranger comes into their tent, they give him this little cup and then they fill it with really very, very strong coffee that I just don't yeah. like. Yeah. And no, they, you don't like it. <laughs> and they fill it up with like a third. And if they like you, they go for the next third. And ah. if they really like you, they will give it full. And if you get up to the third level of the full, you're under their protection. You're under their friendship. You have a relationship. Right. But if they stop at the first level, the Bedouin guy that I talked to uh, mm-hmm. told me, that's the indication, get out of my home, I don't want to see you again, and don't ever come back. <laughs> that's it's, fascinating. I mean, that, that's what he told me, and I went, oh, well, I don't want to get on your wrong side. Yeah. Even today, when you're trying to get yeah. to know someone, or you're yeah. trying to bond with someone, yeah. we offer to go out to eat, to mm. drink. Mm. Um, there is something about mm. eating together that really kind of breaks down any kind of, I don't want to maybe say barriers, but defenses. And when we talk about 
food not only is important about what they eat and how they eat it mm. but also the social elements behind it who has the power to prepare it what politics are involved what customs and norms are being taught through the preparation and the consumption of food so just like we do today you know we when you sit at the table with your kids you know it's not just a meal you are also training them in hopefully the art of conversation <laughs> um, what's acceptable table manners mm. what isn't you know mm. today one of those unacceptable table manners at least mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. household is um, no phones at the table it's not just about the cooking and how it's prepared and what foods that they grew and prepared it into and what techniques and cooking pots and ovens that they use but all those social ramifications behind it too are just fascinating so it makes me wonder what kind of things were these meals even just everyday meals, not necessarily special occasions, but what everyday meals, what kind of accepted customs and norms and practices were being taught and practiced and implemented in the household. I'm Avi ben Mordechai. My special guest is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott at William Jessup University near Sacramento, California. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott has authored two books based on her field excavations in Israel and has a third book coming out in 2021. I'll resume this discussion with my guest after we take this short break. You are listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-40. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Once again, shalom friends, I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and my special guest is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology at William Jessup University near Sacramento, California. Let's now continue where we left off in discussing domestic cooking and domestic life in the time of the Hebrew Bible between 500 and 1,000 years before Yeshua shows up on the scene. Everything you're saying is so fantastic. It's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, so you've got to take the archaeology, the physical part. You've got to take the texts. Mm -hmm. You've got to take the, mm -hmm. the ethnoarchaeology and the ethnography and the iconography, mm -hmm. which is the representational art. You know, you've got to take all of these things. They're all pieces of the puzzle that you want to try to put together to kind of give us a better, accurate representation of what daily life was like. So let, let's go on here. Uh, what did they do? back in those days, did they have dried or smoked meats at all? I would assume it probably would preserve really well. Yeah, smoked meat, smoked fish. That would have better preserved things as well. Mm -hmm. Salted mm -hmm. fish. Okay, uh, fish caught by local fishermen. And if you're thinking of in, in the South, like in Judah in, in particular, you know, we do find occasionally fish remains. Mm. Of course, you know, indicates a lot of trade going on because for most of the Iron Age, not entirely, but, you know, there's discussions about how much access to the coastline would, mm. uh, especially Kingdom of Judah would have had. There would have been trade going on. So when we find some fish remains, that's, that's definitely something that you can pinpoint Go, okay, look, they're getting this from elsewhere as well. 
And you're saying the fish bones, the skeletons, they actually last a thousand, two thousand years. They're preserved. I mean, we don't have a lot, but there's some. And I seem to recall that fish bones were found at uh, Bethsaida. They used some of the bones for like needles or needlework or something. Yeah, needles for um, the fishing nets. So they used fish bones for that. How about butter? From cows or goats? Probably goats, I would think. Yeah, not necessarily so much from from cows, more from your sheep and your goats. Cows were... For plowing fields. If you had cattle, you probably didn't have very much of it. And that you did have, you would use for certain things. But you were more dependent upon your sheep and your goats. In fact, out of all the animal bones that we find uh, in the field, it's sheep and goats. I'm not a zoo archaeologist, so Mm -hmm. I can't Mm -hmm. tell looking at the bone if it's sheep or goat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, we kind of just make a hybrid out of them and call them sheep goat. The sheep goat was used more for the (laughs) the food, right? Right, for their products primarily, for their secondary product. Okay, so that leads me to ask then uh, yogurt. Yeah. Your sheep, your goats, you would use their milk to make into yogurt, into butter, into cheeses. Hmm. People are are using Bible stuff, that whole Ezekiel bread. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, go into yeah. these expensive grocery stores and yeah. you got this high-end, very yeah. organic yeah. bread. When I look at that passage in Ezekiel, that's yeah. not what I think of. They're in times of distress. They're in exile and God's telling Ezekiel to put all of these random products together. What you basically have left, he's basically, at least the way I see it, is he's making poor food. Hmm. He just has left over and putting it all together to make some sort of like gruel or really kind of soft, mushy bread. Would you say that wheat was more of the rich man's food and barley was the poor man's food? Yes, absolutely. Oh, vegetables, veggies? Vegetables aren't mentioned very much in the Hebrew Bible. And when they are, you know, it's kind of like, eh. The Bible doesn't really talk a lot about vegetables. It's mostly dairy and meat, those kinds of metaphors, huh? And and Mm -hmm. bread, Mm -hmm. cereals. We we talked about it earlier. Every Passover, when you had to make the leavening, you know, the, the, the yeast... The seor, you know, to put into the dough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a process to do that. That was a week or more process. So here you are throwing it out every year. Yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. would have been a big deal. It, it's very, very difficult for the people to make. Every year, they have to toss it out and start again. And that would be a, a real sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they have sourdough, the preservation. They have the bread cakes. But I want to talk about something that is in 2 Samuel 13.8 and 13.10, dumplings. Dumplings, yes. This is like uh, matzo balls, you know. And I think you're thinking about the um, the passage with uh Tamar and Amnon, where he is pretending to be sick so she can come and, and, and cook for him. And it's the lebibot, right? Uh, the dumplings. Was this something like akin to, you know, chicken noodle soup when you're sick? You know, that someone says, oh, I'm going to make you some uh, chicken noodle soup because you're feeling unwell and this will help you feel well. You know, I wondered, well, is this something that you made when someone was feeling poorly? Hmm. Or was this just something that she knew how to make? You know, there's all sorts of questions. Professor Schaefer-Elliott, was there bread 
back then, the stuff they made, whether it was sourdough, rye, spelt, Ezekiel bread, whatever you want to call it. What was the difference between these flour grains back then, even today? In some respects, they had a better diet because it was more natural and they were eating things that were better for you than all of the junk that we eat. But at the same time, they were based on a seasonal diet. You know, their year was based on the agricultural year. So Mm. what they had access to was very seasonally. And then also really, again, heavily dependent on cereals to where they were malnourished in a lot of ways. You know, they weren't super healthy. They were healthier than us in some ways, but in other ways, they may not have been because they were so dependent on cereals and they were so seasonal that they weren't getting the fruits and vegetables all year long that we think today that you need to have. When you did come across or when you would from time to time come across the skeletal remains from 2,000, 3,000 years ago, the forensics involving Mm -hmm. the bone structure, the teeth, the uh, the skull structure. I mean, you've seen stuff like that. I have, and um, it's pretty amazing what they can tell when they analyze mm. the skeletal remains of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they could look at the teeth and learn all sorts of things. They can mm-hmm. look at their bones. You can look at repetitive stress mm. on their mm. skeletal framework. Mm. So there's all sorts of things they can learn. And, you know, it just always brings me back to this idea that even though I study this all the time, Mm -hmm. I'm still a 21st century person with a certain history Mm -hmm. and background and current life circumstances and living in Mm -hmm. where I live and growing up how I grew up, you know. So even though I study this, I often wonder how much am I really fully grasped? their world. So if you would please summarize for me, Dr. Elliot Schaefer, the daily domestic, social, and food life that was so common in that period that you are studying in the field, looking at over these many years, roughly the period about a thousand before Yeshua till about the time of the Babylonian exile, 587 thereabouts, that 500 year period there, give or take. What was the daily life of an Israelite like? What did they do? How did they live? Just a general summary statement. Well, I think it would have been a lot harder than uh, I even can even imagine. You know, your life would have been slower than our lives are today Mm -hmm. um, based on agricultural calendar, um, the seasons, the people in your household, the animals in your household, the land of your household. You would have been concerned with all of it and all of it trying to work together for the survival of the family, not only in just the here and the now, but into the future. Your daily sustenance would have been your food preparation, your production, your preparation, your distribution, your storage, um, making things that you're going to use and making them and advancing your technology and your skills. I mean, these people would have had skills that I couldn't even imagine having to do. So I think what we tend to do, like I said earlier, is we tend to romanticize the biblical world and we tend to sanitize it. But I also think we tend to simplify the people 
that we think, oh, these ancient people, they didn't have all the technology that we have today. They didn't have all the science knowledge that we have. You know, they just were so simple. I think we need to give them a lot more credit than Mm. we do. I Mm. don't think there was anything simple about their lives. I think they knew how to do much more than we know how to do. Wow. The person I am here and today, if I was put in that time period, I wouldn't survive. That's quite a statement to make. Maybe all of us could probably could agree with you and say the same thing. And thinking, Professor, if there was the sound of the drumbeats of war and conflict, that would have just scared them to no end because now that's a serious disruption in their overall survival mode. And then part of this last question, can you formulate for me in a summary statement, what did they basically eat for breakfast, basically for lunch, basically for dinner, if they had three meals a day? Maybe they only had two. What did they basically eat? Bread, bread, and more bread. (laughs) 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 Now, I mean, breakfast could have been porridge, again, made out of cereals, maybe some leftover stuff that didn't spoil from the night before. Um, lunch would have been uh, raw and light and seasonal, something that you could take with you as you're out and about doing all the household work that you need to do. Uh, dinner would have been a stew of seasonal vegetables and legumes. And if times were really bad and you didn't even have that, um, you could just have gruel again. And if times were really good, maybe you had some meat to put in that stew, or if it was a special occasion, you were able to roast, uh, you know, a lamb. That's an awesome summary statement. I love it. We (laughs) have to talk about your books, though. One of the the project that I referred to a couple of times um, that I'm co-editing with um, another two scholars, an archaeologist, Carol Myers, Uh, from Duke University and Jan Ling Fu from Harvard University. And it's the T&T Clark Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel. And it's an edited volume. So we have um, scholars from all over the place uh, looking at different aspects of food. So uh, food from an archaeological perspective and food from a textual perspective as well. So it should be published sometime next year. And of course, you mentioned my my other two previous books, but I do a lot on um, households and food and daily life. Give us the titles of the books again, please, if you will. Sure. My dissertation that was turned into a book is uh, Food in Ancient Judah. Um, that was in 2013. Okay. And that's a really academic y type of book. And then the edited volume that I edited, The Five Minute Archaeologist in the mm-hmm. Southern Levant, that is geared towards a wider audience who just has questions about archaeology and, um, you know, who decides where to excavate and how do we excavate it and what happens with the stuff afterwards. And uh, you can find both these things on Amazon. And then uh, the big project that I'm working on that is coming up soon is this TNT Clark Handbook of Food uh, in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel. Say that slowly again, please. Yeah, so the publisher is TNT Clark. It's uh, part of the Bloomsbury Publishing Group in England. They have a whole series of handbooks. 
And this is the Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible in Ancient Israel. That will be published next year. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of academics, you know, write and talk yeah. to other academics only. And, you know, if we really want to um, educate the wider public, we need to do more things like this. Give us the website where people can look you up further, if you would, please. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I do have my own uh, website at the university. So if you um, type in my name, Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, William Jessup University, it should take you directly to my um, my webpage there. Dr. Uh, Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, that's S-H-A-F-E-R hyphen E-L-L-I-O-T-T. Correct. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, William Jessup University in California, not far from Sacramento, California, near Roseville, if I believe it's correct. Yeah, it's in Rockland. Rockland. Which, um, you know, is right next to Roseville. Professor Schaefer Elliott, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. And, of course, thanks to each of you for giving Dr. Schaefer Elliott a listening part of your day to learn about some of the incredible research that she has exposed as a trained archaeologist in Israel, digging up Iron Age II biblical history, encompassing the period between King David and the southern kingdom of Judah just before its exile to Babylon. My guest holds a position as Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology. Dr. Schaefer Elliott owns a PhD earned at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, and she is an experienced field archaeologist with many years of excavating and digging up numerous historical sites and tells in modern-day Israel. My guest is the author of the book, The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant, which essentially is a user-friendly exploration of some basic concepts within archaeology as well as the techniques and methods used by archaeologists in the field of archaeological exploration. Dr. Schaefer Elliott is also the author of another book dealing with food in ancient Judah, domestic cooking in the time of the Hebrew Bible. And also, she has another book that she is currently working on. The anticipated release date of that new book is 2021, dealing with food in ancient Israel. Shalom from Coming Home and Real Israel Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Here at Coming Home and the podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio, we love to hear from our listeners. Now, maybe you have a question about something that you heard. Maybe you just want to express yourself with a comment, or perhaps you might like for us to address a particular issue or subject. That's right. If you have a suggestion for a program, or you have something on your mind that you might like for me, Avi, or perhaps my wife, Suzanne, or both of us, to try to bring an answer that you are struggling with, well, we would be pleased to speak about it here on Real Israel Talk Radio. 
Of course, we'll always do our best to answer your questions and comments to the best of the knowledge and truth that we currently have from a biblical Hebraic point of view. Now, don't be bashful or feel that your question might be too silly or perhaps embarrassing. Not here and not ever. So please go ahead and send us an email with any of your questions or comments that you might have, and it will help us to better meet the needs of all those who regularly listen to this program. Send your email to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. Now, it's interesting that in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read this. And Jehovah Elohim commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Simply, what this tells me is that the Almighty Eternal One will often speak to us through the wisdom and understanding given to us through others, that is, the, quote, other trees in the garden, so long as we do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and eat that fruit as if it were a source for our wisdom. The biblical truth of the matter is this, from Deuteronomy 8.3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by all that comes out of the mouth of Elohim. And precisely, what is it that comes out of the mouth of Jehovah? Well, we learn the answer from Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. He shall not return to me empty, but he shall accomplish what I please, and he shall prosper in that for which I sent him. Which, of course, is what Yeshua said to his disciples in John 4.34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. The principle of the matter is this. There is good wisdom to be heard and many good lessons to be learned from many other people out there who can be metaphorically likened to trees in the Garden of Eden, trees that are not mixed in with the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is why we prayerfully open up Real Israel Talk Radio to others who might like to share some of their good fruit of wisdom with all of us. And furthermore, you also might have something on your heart and mind that you might like us to address, or perhaps even a comment that might be of some interest to others in our listening audience. Send us your questions and or your comments to us here at questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. 
as Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott was discussing with us some of her archaeological research about ancient Israel, for sure it is all fascinating and it can be encouraging because it is the historical material culture of the Hebrew nation and that she and many others like her are regularly excavating and uncovering in Eretz Israel. The material culture is interesting and important for us to know because it opens up our Bible to help us better understand the words of Scripture. But the one thing that we must not confuse as fact is the question, who is Israel? Yes, it is a question that often stirs up a lot of spiritual and scholarly discussion and sometimes some deep-seated arguments. But as I see things, it really does not require that we give a complicated answer because the answer is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. When asking the question, who is Israel? The answer is a nation that has gone through a messianic redemption, internally and externally. A nation that is defined as the new man in Messiah. Thus, true Israel is identified in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we'll talk about these things and many others in an upcoming podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. So once again, my friends, if you have questions and or comments that you might like us to have a go at here for a biblical Hebraic answer, do send us an email with any of your questions or comments. Send your email to questions at cominghome.co.il. And yes, please go ahead and make suggestions to us about topics and discussions that you might like us to address here for some future programs. And before I close, I do want to give a hearty thanks to all of you who contribute towards our regular operating costs. Now, whilst we never ask for money on this program, and that all of our online teaching materials are made available free of charge to everyone, regardless of whether one gives or not. If you would like to contribute to this work, as many often do, we will seek to use the money wisely in order to make these programs continually free for listening and or downloading. Take care and be blessed. Avi Ben Mordechai here at Coming Home. Real Israel Talk Radio.